The Jesuit School of Theology at Santa Clara University equips students to live out their theology and transform our world. Generous scholarship opportunities are available. Priority applications are being accepted now. To learn more, visit scu.edu forward slash JST forward slash hello. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from America Media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for an honest conversation about the Catholic Church in our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And once again, over snow. Woo! New York has snow for the first time in like 700 days. Yeah, but it's not the pretty kind of snow. It's it- like this slip on your butt because it's icy and then fall into a puddle kind of snow. No, not great. But <laughs> yesterday was when I woke up, it was really pretty. Yeah. And then I went outside and it sleeted all over me. But um, <laughs> I don't talk about the weather, but I just know it's really exciting. It makes me happy, especially yeah, in January. Like things are, yeah, Christmas is over. We still got a lot of winter left. Um, so a little bit of snow is making me happy this week. And you know what else is making me happy this week? This great show we have. Yes, we are talking to Father Alex Santora. He is the pastor of Our Lady of Grace and St. Joseph Parish in Hoboken, New Jersey, just across the Hudson River for us, which is not frozen, but we'll hear more about that later. <laughs> yes, it is really cold, though, which, you know, I'm so grateful to Father Santora because he heard that we do drinks on the podcast and brought us some White Claws. Yes, which is bringing me straight back to summer on Coney Island. <laughs> you know, I'm so happy because he said that he keeps the like parish fridge stocked full of White Claws for the young adult group. And I'm like, look, guys, young adult mystery is not hard. He solved it. Yeah. Just keep the, if you, if you put White Claws in your fridge, they will come. Yes. Easy as that. <laughs> All right. So cheers. Cheers. To summer in the middle of January. So the reason we wanted to talk to uh, Father Santora is I'm sure... Listeners, you've heard about this big document from the Vatican, Fiducia Supplicans. It's it's a document that allows for the um, blessings of couples in same sex and other irregular relationships. Yeah, the document itself uh, distinguishes between uh, what it calls liturgical blessings, which um, would appear to legitimize. Uh, these relationships or unions versus those of a, quote, spontaneous and pastoral nature that's meant to emphasize like what a blessing really is. And that's to uh, emphasize God's abounding love and asking him for help in our lives. Yeah. And so the document or declaration is the formal term for it, but it came from the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. Um, And it quotes Pope Francis saying, quote, when one asks for a blessing, one is expressing a petition for God's assistance, a plea to live better and confidence in a father who can help us live better. Yeah. And the declaration does not change the church's teaching on marriage. It's pretty clear about that. And it goes the extra effort to explain that, I think. But it does emphasize that no one seeking a blessing, whether they're in what the church calls in a regular relationship or not, um, should be expected to be in a state of moral perfection. Right. And said these blessings are meant to be a way for the church to accompany all Catholics by emphasizing God's love and, and giving space uh, for his grace for people who, you know, if you're approaching a priest for a blessing, that that in itself is showing an opening to God to enter into your into your lives in whatever way is is needed to bring you closer to him and to make you more holy. That's right. And look, this is this document has caused a lot of debate. 
whether it's on Catholic Twitter or among bishops' conferences around the world or various Catholic commentators. But for this show, what we wanted to do is uh, bring someone in who has some like on the ground pastoral experience. Yeah, Father Santor has been a priest for 41 years. So he's he's been dealing with every pastoral challenge you can imagine, including this one. It's not like this is just like a new thing that priests have to deal with. People asking for blessings and you how do you respond when no one is perfect? Does that mean they don't deserve a blessing? That's right. And so oftentimes like it's these discussions about Vatican News, it's like very up in the clouds. Um, But Reality is lived on the ground. And so we wanted to bring in a pastor um, like Father Alex, who's living reality on the ground. So stick around for that great conversation. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And first up, we're talking about hell. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so in a recent interview, Pope Francis was asked how he imagines hell. Because, you know, Pope Francis, he very much emphasizes the merciful aspect of God. So the, the interviewer was like, so if God forgives everyone, what's going on in hell? And Pope Francis said in response, quote, it's difficult to imagine it. What I would say is not a dogma of faith, but my personal thought. I like to think hell is empty. I hope it is. End quote. Yeah. And... You know, we'll say Francis doesn't always distinguish like that, you know, between his personal thoughts and dogma. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> Helpful in this case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and not everybody was super happy with that. Uh, there was a lot of people, um, sites like Catholic Vote, Crisis Magazine, which are often pretty critical of Francis. I think it's fair to say people criticize the Pope's remarks as dangerous and misleading. Yeah. So my gut reaction is like, yeah, I hope hell, hell is empty too. But like, that's not the reaction of everyone. And so I was curious to like look into what the critiques are. And so one like representative critique I found was from Eric Sammons um, in Crisis Magazine. He said, so we can see that Pope Francis's hope that hell is empty is not harmless, harmless, wishful thinking. It leads people away from a serious practice of the faith and it leads them away from bringing others to a serious practice of the faith. So the idea is that like, if you if he gives the idea that no one is in hell, then people will be lax in their morality and they will be lax in their efforts to evangelize others who do not believe in Christ. If, you know, if you don't have to believe in Christ to escape hell, then like, why would I make an effort to convert anyone? It's kind know, of the big critique. Yeah, so <laughs> but, and I'm trying I would, to think of a charitable way to I know, describe that way. I think the more, the more common critique is like the Hitler critique. It's like, wait, so you're telling me that Hitler is in heaven? Right. To respond to the first one, it's like you can try to compel people to f- go to church through fear. Um, I think we found that doesn't work anymore. And it was maybe not the best thing that that's what we were doing to begin with. That that seems pretty clear to me. Um, you can try to like threaten people with hell to get them to convert or you can tell them about God's love. I know which one I want to do. I don't know the, the like Hitler problem or the Judas problem or, you know, any like the guy that like overcharged me on my cable bill um, last week. No, I I mean, look, there's a lot of people I think that we would like to see in hell because we would like to believe there's some kind of justice in the world, right? Like there's some kind of right and wrong. There's a sense of order and like truly evil people definitely like I hope belong in hell is what someone would think. But like the scandal of what we believe, I think, is that, you know, even at the last moment, if there's some sense of real repentance that, God's mercy is not finite, right? And so if we believe that God is infinite and God's love is infinite and God's mercy is infinite, if we say that like someone is in hell, we know that they're in hell 
for a fact, I think that puts a limit on that. Yeah, and I think it's important to distinguish between denying that hell could possibly exist and that there could be people in it and hoping and praying that there aren't any people in hell. So the, the catechism of the Catholic Church does affirm the existence of hell and the possibility that there are people in it and that it, hell could last for an eternity. But it also defines hell as separation from God. From my point of view, that separation is the choice of the human. It's not like God being like, nope, I gave up on you, I'm sending you to hell. It's like the individual saying, no, I do not want God's love and mercy. And so, and so the idea is that like the church has said that what's called hard universalism, the idea that hell can't exist, like it's impossible that a loving God would allow people to not love him is, is heresy because he has given us the freedom to turn away from God. Right. But the soft universalism is the hope that like everyone given that freedom would eventually turn to God. Which it, which I I hope for. Yeah. I, I'm with Francis. <laughs> yeah, totally. And this is not like unique to Francis. We should yeah. say um, this is something I think that you know von Balthasar believed and Teresa Lisieux talks about. So this is not like a necessarily totally novel idea, but it certainly does seem to still really upset people. Um, people with long lists of people they would like to see in hell. Maybe, which I, or... I will say, it's a very. I think that's a very human just kind of gut response of like, really? <laughs> no one goes to hell? <laughs> yeah, I dismissed the like concern about morality a yeah. little earlier, but I mean like, I think even like people like going back to Kant believe that if you didn't have some sense of divine justice that people would do whatever they wanted. Um, and so like this has been a concern of ethicists and philosophers and not just cranks on Twitter um, for a long time. But I still think, I don't know, you can't force, you can't threaten people and make them do good now. I've thought differently around toddlers before. Um, and I've thought differently around you. <laughs> fair. Understandable. Um, but I think we do both agree. We hope hell's empty. We agree with Pope Francis. Yep. All right. What's our next story, Zach? So coming out of the Iowa caucuses this week, we are watching the polls very closely. Not and depressingly. <laughs> depressing. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but not for anyone running for president of the United States, but rather a poll about Pope Francis. That is right. So a new poll from Gallup, which you might be more used to seeing Biden-Trump polls from Gallup, but they also uh, take the temperature on how people feel, feel about Pope Francis. So they found that among Americans, he has a 58% approval rating and a unapproval rating with a new high of 30%. That's right. So uh, breaking this out a little bit further, 77% of U.S. Catholics view Pope Francis favorably. Um, but this is a little below average from him, but the unfavorable rating among U.S. Catholics has hit a new high at 17%. Gallup has been tracking this periodically uh, since Francis's papacy began in 2013. There was a, it was an, an initial high. Um, after, it's like presidents, too. Yeah. You always get a little bump a after little bump. you win. Um, and the lowest rating was uh, it, around the general American public was after the summer of 2018 when there was this sense. there is a lot of uh, news about the sexual abuse crisis back in the news um, new revelations of ways the Cardinal McCarrick report um, that all that all is happening but US Catholics have consistently rated him more favorably usually hovering around 80% okay so you're saying so the average over the last 10 years has been 80 and now he's just he's below just dipping that below it a little bit 77 yeah. okay okay and so Gallup Breaks this up by ideology. So conservative Americans are less favorable towards Pope Francis at just 42% favorable and liberals 70%, moderates 66%. So that kind of – it's funny how this tracks 
kind of politics. presidential yeah, politics. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's interesting. Um, comparing with previous popes, Francis is more popular than Benedict XVI, but less than John Paul II. But John Paul II was actually kind of inversed with Francis, where he was more likely to be viewed as too conservative the longer his papacy went on, where Francis has um, been viewed more favorably with people who identify as liberal the longer his papacy's gone on. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1987, Gallup started asking Catholics whether John Paul II was too conservative. Um, At that time, 27% of Catholics said that he was too conservative. Um, and then in 2003, when they asked that question again, 38% of Catholics said the Pope was too conservative. So I, I, I'm not surprised by any of this, I guess. Yeah. Um, wh- what I think is interesting is like social issues impacting this a little bit. We should note that this was conducted in December. So the like impact of Francis's document allowing for the blessings of people in uh, same-sex relationships has not uh impacted this in any way. I'm guessing so, it so would just- So what do you mean by social issues impacting it? What do you I think, think like popes are viewed as being too hard or soft on um, social issues that track onto US politics. So whether that's abortion or same-sex marriage or economics, things like that, I think it tends to, that's what drives a lot of the like conservative liberal divide um, more than like maybe Latin mass, like which is conce- seen as like a church- quote unquote, conservative yeah. issue. One thing I do wonder about is whether um, the comments Pope Francis has made about the U.S. church have affected this. I wasn't paying as close attention to previous papacies, um, so I don't know how much uh, Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul II spoke directly about his critics in the U.S. Um, yeah, I w- <laughs> when I was like trying to research a story, I was trying to find any correlation between like, like John Paul II speaking out against the Iraq war. Mm. Um, and whether that affected his uh, favorability. And I couldn't quite find anything super concrete linking mm. those two things, but I was I was also curious. Yeah, and that and maybe that is less of says less about the popes and more about the media environment that we're in, where mm-hmm. we're just like fed things and it's like, oh, the Pope's a communist. Sure. <laughs> like I'm sure, you know, people weren't seeing on Facebook, oh, JP two like is against the U- the Iraq war <laughs> and like yeah, so. no, I don't know. I the data nerd in me wants to break out this data a lot more. How does this compare to like a a majority Catholic country? Mm-hmm. Maybe like what is the Pope's favorability rating there? Because like fifty eight percent is kind of low. I don't yeah. know. Like I would think. Um, do you, for, for do the you think the Pope public, should care? No, I I mean <laughs> I think you should care a little bit. Like right, if this if Francis says like emphasizing synodality and consulting people, um, I I there was talk about like bishops getting job reviews. Um, in this last yeah, synod. Yeah, so why should the Bishop of Rome be excused I, from that? <laughs> I agree. In some sense, it's like good that this position and bishops in general are immune from this kind of like looking at things just because like you don't want them to be, you know, campaigning for re-election every, every four years. Um, you want some stability there, I think. Um, but, you know. But you also don't want the cop out like, oh, only God can judge me. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I can because I, there have been plenty of failures. <laughs> yeah, and I'm pl- I, I, I judge lots of people. I know I'm not supposed to, but it is interesting to think about like how what Francis does in the Vatican, how that news trickles down through the media, whether that's on Jesuitical or the New York Times or wherever, and how that impacts the way people view him or think about him in their day to day lives. So, listeners, do you approve of Pope Francis? But what percentage would you say you approve of it? Just kidding. Um, but if you get a call from Gallup, let him know. And I don't know. Tell him I think he's doing a pretty good job. 
Now stick around for our conversation about the new document from the Vatican on blessings for couples in same-sex and irregular relationships with Father Alex Santora. Joining us in studio is Father Alex Santora. Father Santora is the pastor of Our Lady of Grace and St. Joseph Parish in Hoboken, New Jersey. Welcome to Jesuitical, Father. Thank you, Ashley. And thank you for crossing the river to be with us. Uh, well, Zach, Much appreciated. Well, I could take the train, but do you know, in the early 19th century, the priests from St. Peter's, Barclay Street, and Wall Street area would walk over the Hudson River when it froze to say mass in downtown Jersey City. What? So yeah. you're saying they, they walked on water? Well, <laughs> it was ice water. It was ice water, but nonetheless. Yeah, well, back then it would freeze. The whole, river, the whole river would freeze. That's incredible. Yeah, I think if there's no transubstantiation, it's still water. So <laughs> I, I'm going to call it water. But anyway, thank you so much for being with us. You've, you've been ordained for 41 years, and we're bringing you on today because we need some pastoral wisdom, especially with everything in the news right now. Yeah, we're talking a mo- about a month almost a month to the day, that uh, Pope Francis and the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith issued a new declaration on giving blessings to uh, couples in irregular situations. That could be people in same-sex relationships or divorced and remarried Catholics. And often these conversations happen at a very high theological level. Like, is he changing church teaching? How is this being received by the bishops conferences? But we really wanted to get the view of someone who's on the ground, who's been dealing with these irregular situations, as we call them, for for many, many years. This is not new. So I'm wondering, just take us back to December when this came out. What what was your first reaction as, as a pastor? Well, I was surprised that it happened. I think being over the holidays, a lot of the impact wasn't really felt because in my situation, a lot of the parishioners travel for the holidays Mm -hmm. and then you get a lot of visitors who come. And then obviously the liturgies of this season really have their own messages. Yeah, not a lot of room for spontaneous blessings. (laughs) So, um, So it was good to be able to digest it, to kind of get a sense of how it's being uh, accepted or not all over the world. And I was just happy to hear that uh, it was something now that's very concrete. And I have a, I have a variety of parishioners. Um, I don't ask people anything about their lives. But um, there's, a young, there's a couple that have been together for a long time. And right before Christmas, we talked about doing something to bless their relationship. And then they went away for the holiday. So while they were away, this came out. And this so, is a same-sex Same-sex same okay. couple. But they've been, I've been in this parish for 19 years. I would say most of the time they've been worshiping. They're very faithful. And they're very quiet. They don't talk much about, they're just at church. And, but I think they're ready to have something. And I think when they returned from their vacation uh, just last Sunday, we talked about it. And they're really thrilled that the Pope has given this opportunity for it to happen kind of officially. Now, I had seen some uh, kvetching online, and I, I don't think this is necessarily without cause, that because this happened over the holidays, that pastors at a time when they're already so busy might be inundated with like uh, phone calls to the rectory or just like, what's going on? Like, I've, I've 
questions about this, like when new teachings like this come out or new declarations come out, do you find yourself like often on the front lines explaining this for people or is this just like over most people's heads? Well, actually nobody brought it up to me over the holidays. I certainly consulted with some parishioners just to get a feel for things and I'm trying to see how we can now um, introduce it to the parishioners and implement it in a way that people could understand. Uh, we've had an LGBTQ ministry in our parish for about eight, eight years now. And so we have a pride mass every year. So our community is, I think, accepting and also glad that we're being inclusive. But I think it takes time to bring them along. So well, I think they would expect that I would raise that with them. And we, we had a staff meeting today and we talked about that. Uh, how we're going to unfold this to the parishioners and then um, see what kind of feedback we get from them. You mentioned that there was this couple that, you know, has been at your parish for a long time and was interested in some sort of blessing. I'm wondering, you know, was was this something that was coming to you often before where people wanted some sort of blessing and you felt like you couldn't say yes or, you know, how ground right. up is the need that yeah. this document is <clears throat> responding to? Well, with this couple, I'll share how it came about. Um, about two months ago, before the release of the document, a parishioner said to me, this couple would like a blessing, but they're afraid to ask you lest they get you in trouble. Now, that wouldn't deter me from doing it. But so finally, I said something to them before they went away on vacation. So before this came down, we talked about it. And, but then we left it open. So they're the first couple that I'm actually working with on this particular blessing. Do you, is that a common uh, experience where you find that parishioners don't want to necessarily like put you in a hard spot, uh, so to speak, or like get you in trouble, as they said? Well, I'm not saying we're just definitely a totally progressive community, but we have a lot of families with children. We have a lot of uh, elderly, young adults. And I think part of our mission they see is to reach out to people. I think Francis has led the way. The more inclusive we are, the better we are. So I think they expect that we will deal with some things because we've dealt with a variety of things through the years. And so I think they're waiting to see, you know, what does it mean? And then how do we kind of enflesh it in the parish? One thing that I've been seeing in a lot of the commentary around this is like two camps of one that it's like, this doesn't change anything. We've always been able to give spontaneous blessings to people who ask for it. We're blessing just to people. Um, and like you said, you don't inquire into every detail of their lives. And then other people who are like, no, this actually is a pretty significant development. Um, how did you interpret it? I thought it was kind of minimalistic because basically there's so many things you have to be careful about based on the, the actual document. But then, what, what are some of those things? Just for well, for example, it was not supposed to be somewhat equivalent to a union ceremony or a marriage. And it did specify it should be like when you go on a pilgrimage or in a prayer group. So they want to distinguish that from, let's say, a heterosexual marriage. But again, it's also divorced and remarried, as you pointed out, Ashley. And would, would a, a couple living together before marriage also be considered a regular? Well, I think so. Definition. And actually, somebody raised that issue with me, engaged couples, 
now many engaged couples live together. I'll live together. And I did a I did a marriage prep last night, and I was I asked the groom, "Where do you live?" And I was about to write the same address for the bride, and she said a different address, which is rare today. But it doesn't matter to me. But I think. As you say, that's irregular in some, and traditionally it is. Well, it's, that's one thing I've thought about. What it's emphasized in the document that you know you're not supposed to ask to, you're not supposed to interrogate this person. You don't need to know every detail of their lives before you invite God's grace upon them. And I just think that like we focus on same-sex couples, we focus on divorce and remarried couples, but you mentioned people who are cohabitating before marriage, or even a couple who is. Um, using contraception within a marriage, wouldn't that be considered irregular given the definition of marriage as a man and woman open to the possibility of life? (laughs) Well, you know, I think the point you made about not inquiring is that when, I think the document stressed what blessings are. Like when you're giving a blessing, you're not condoning anything. You're affirming the dignity and the goodness of that person or those people. And I think that's what Francis wants us to do. So I'm not worried about any of that stuff. And as you say, that's not something for me to ask. If they present themselves, like this Sunday, a man came in church with a hat on and he didn't take it off. And I'm a little old fashioned in that way. So I said to him, (laughs) could you, he came up to me and he said, I'm having treatment for cancer. I says, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, that's fine. So I said to him, would you like an anointing after the mass? He says, no, I'm doing okay now. So I think that I really believe that when people are in situations, when they're coming to you, then we have to accept them. And I think the Pope has enlarged the tent now in terms of those blessings. I've come to appreciate the, the older I get the the real art for being a pastor because you are just presented with like I mean human life is just so messy and people come to you bringing whatever whatever baggage they have whether whatever is happening in their lives right now and you've got to be in a position to to respond as you know as Jesus would which mm-hmm. is a, which is a very tall order right mm-hmm. um, because a lot of times it's it might be this person's like only experience of church. In a, in a long time, uh, I think a lot of people see like the rules is very black and white with within Catholicism. But how do you discern in the moment like what's the best way to do things? Like, are you ever worried about like blurring lines of church teaching or like getting in trouble? Well, that, can, and the big thing said? that comes up is is confusing or causing scandal. How does that incorporate in how, in how you yeah. respond in the moment? Well, I think yesterday's gospel was exactly what we have to be about. And what people. was that gospel story? Well, it was about the fact that Jesus, they're saying, why are your, your disciples doing these things on the Sabbath? And, you know, we're made not to follow laws, but the laws are there to help us. But I'm not worried about that. I mean, I've been around the block enough that my concern is that people feel open to come and talk about whatever it is or to come for advice, even preaching, to preach messages that let people think for themselves, not telling them what to think, but giving them the tools to kind of do it themselves. So I think I feel, Zach, as you asked, I I feel comfortable if people come up with something, just do the best. But sometimes it backfires too. You know, you just have to trust that whatever it is, you can help someone. Does that come with experience, this this attitude, or? It's a combination. I mean, I grew up when there was a lot of change in society. So even in the church, I mean, I was in seventh grade, I got called out of 
class to go see the parish priest. And I was a good student. So I was shaking in my boots. Why am I going to the rectory? He asked me to be a lector for the first Sunday that we would have the mass in English. <laughs> wow. And I mean, what, so, a, what an honor. <laughs> I know. So, so the thing is that, you know, I've been a part of that change since I was a student mm -hmm. in grammar school. So change is not something that I am worried about. And I do think that um, the church has to continue. Otherwise, if we get stagnant, I think it's going to be worse. And the world is changing so fast. I think we have to kind of, not so much that we change for the worlds, but that if we don't relate, then I think people find us irrelevant. And I think that's the greatest threat if they see the church as being irrelevant. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You've mentioned meeting with your parish council about how you're going to implement this and having kind of a plan. What, what does that look like? Because in the document, it says this is supposed to be spontaneous. I had a staff meeting this morning. And so what we're going to do is in February, probably when Lent starts, print excerpts of the document in the bulletin and then preach on it when it's in the bulletin so people could read it. Then the next week after one of the biggest masses, and anyone who wants to stay and, and talk will talk and just see, you know, what are their questions? How are they reacting? Then um, we've had some good Zoom conferences during COVID, and we have an LGBT ministry. And the fellow who heads it is a very gifted uh, Catholic man, and he moderated a lot of the Zoom discussions. So that brings in a wider group because we get people from Pennsylvania. New York, who listened to the, the Zoom discussion, and we get to talk about it there. So the main concern of those meetings would be, one, how do people in, understand this? What are the, what's their takeaway from the Pope's statement? And then how do we make it real in the parish? So I have to listen and hear what they're going to say, what they might suggest. You know, it's interesting hearing you like come up with a plan to put this Vatican document in the parish bulletin and to talk about it and preach about it. I, I hear from a lot of people who either listen to this podcast or read America, and they often feel like there's this disconnect between like they hear about what's happening in the church from a place like America or another Catholic uh, media outlet, but it's sort of like life goes on at the parish as if nothing ever ever happens in, in church news. And I've, and I've always been a little torn on that because in some ways I feel like there's a lot going on at your parish. Like it's it's a lot to ask your your pastor to also like keep up with the latest like Vatican news and trends and, and then implement it at the parish. But do you feel like that is like the role of a a, a community or a pastor or, or a parish to to instruct the faithful in oh, what's happening? Oh, for sure. And, and 
Like, I'll take an excerpt of something of Francis when I do a pastor's message in the bulletin and use something Francis said. Then Cardinal Tobin, who's our archbishop and has been very supportive of our ministry, um, he does a Rejoice in the Lord newsletter every week. And every so often, I'll lift one of those and let the people read that so that they're getting in touch with some of the currents that are out there. Like he wrote an excellent uh, pastoral letter on the gun control and the need for us to reduce guns. And, and it was a very unusual approach that he took. And I wanted the people to know that and to hear it well, not hear it, but read it from him. So, see, what I do think is important is, you know, I, I learned that you, you have to preach and read the newspaper at the same time. Otherwise, your preaching is stale. And this way, it's not that we're delivering news, but where is the, the Christian kind of insight into what's happening? So I think that's important. Uh, everyone is different, and we don't need all the same pastors. We need different kinds of pastors. The one concern I have in, in our country now is we're having so many foreign-born priests that are coming here that we're going to be having challenges with people understanding our culture. And how do you translate that in a parish when you're from outside the country? And I hear that from people, from not just my church. I hear it from other places. And so that's a concern of mine. And I it's interesting you say that because that that is something that was brought up specifically in relation to fiducio supplicans is that both in the original declaration and then in a later follow-up from Cardinal um, Victor Fernandez kind of clarifying what it all meant. They, they make it very clear that this will apply differently in different cultural contexts. And they even, you know, let the uh, bishops from Africa say, mm, maybe this isn't a good fit for us at this point. Um, so I'm wondering how you think about that as like, sure. what's what's the context that yeah. you're in? And how do you think about being in a universal unified church that has different contexts with relation to this? But I think that's the wisdom of Francis. The Episcopalians went through this, the, the Methodists are going through it. They're splitting over the LGBT issue. I think Francis is wise. I think he's trying to lay a foundation so that you can understand the lives of people as being good with dignity. And this is one way in which you acknowledge it. I am sure that African LGBT people are glad that the Pope is saying this because it gives them a sense of hope. Some of the laws that have been enacted in African countries are draconian. I mean, right before Christmas, the president of Burundi said gays should be stoned. I mean, what is going on? So I think it's important that this is out there. If they don't implement blessings, the world's not going to end. But I think for the gay people to know that the, the Pope is speaking about their integrity is vitally important. Some pastors have worried about being like the person on the front lines who has to tell people no, who might have been confused by like a media headline. Um, so like, say like a couple comes to you and says, Father, would you like do the blessing at our at our wedding? And it's a gay couple. How do you respond in situations like that when it's like, it is it goes further than this document mm -hmm, says mm -hmm. and what you're you're allowed to do. Uh, do you feel like you're sort of like the person who's forced to be bad cop? No, what I would do is try to find a happy medium. First of all, I wouldn't do weddings at receptions. We don't do that. 
So why would I do it for them if I wouldn't do it for another couple? But I would say you mean to them, a, a wedding, a heterosexual wedding that doesn't take place in, in a, a church. church, like, yeah. and I get that asked often, and I don't do that because that's not what we're supposed to do. So I would, but what I would say to the couple is, you know, in the parish we can work something out, but I'm not going to do it in a reception hall because I wouldn't do that normally. Giving a blessing, if I was invited to the wedding and they just asked for a blessing, like a prayer, I would do that. But I, w I wouldn't do a ceremony at uh, a reception hall. But that moment where you don't feel like put upon to tell someone no, like is that something you feel like you have to run into often? Whether it's like, Father, will you come do my marriage under a waterfall in Hawaii? <laughs> you know, or... I, I don't get that many opportunities to have to be the hard guy, and I have no problem saying no to certain situations, but I'm a little bit more concerned about LGBT people. Like recently, I think because of our ministry, a mother who's in a same-sex relationship, they had a baby. They want to baptize the baby. Now, they weren't from the parish, but they're willing to join. I would be a little bit more sensitive not to turn them away because I know that other churches will say no. And then all that does is hurt them. So I said to them, and, and she was very open. So I'm waiting to hear from her to see what the next step is. So my MO would be try to find some way to give them a sense of inclusion rather than to outright say no. A lot of the conversation has focused on um, same-sex couples, but I think just in terms of numbers, there, there might be more couples that are in the divorced and remarried camp in terms of, of Catholics. So I'm wondering how your outreach to them and your pastoral care to them has been and whether this document will, will change things there. Well, where I'm at, it's not been a major concern in terms of the divorce remarried. I think, once again, people they make the best of their lives. If they're remarried and they're coming to church, there's something there. And I think Francis addressed that early in his papacy, that we shouldn't be turning people away and that we should try to help them in some way. Um, but that hasn't been an issue that's come up. I think, though, it would be helpful when we talk to the parishioners as well as in our meetings to raise what you did at the beginning of the podcast. It's divorce remarried. It could be people living together. And, and they're engaged, things like that. I think then they know it's wider than just one group of people. I think that's important to raise that. I'm curious in your your years of ministry, if there were times when you felt like that did not go well. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make note of that and try to you know learn a lesson from it, do something different uh, going forward. If there are any like major like points that stick out for you that were particularly instructive. Early on in my priesthood, um, a couple came to prepare for marriage, and the pastor asked me to do it because the priest who had started it left. And um, so I met with this couple, and I got bad vibes, meaning that the, the man spoke for the entire time. The woman hardly said anything, and she sat there, and I just had some gut reaction that something wasn't right. But anyway, I did it what I had to do. Two years later, she comes back to me alone and was furious that I did their marriage because he turned out to be an abusive husband. Now, I had a sinking suspicion something wasn't right because of how he was dominating everything, but I didn't have enough wherewithal to know that. And she was so angry with me as if that it was my fault that I didn't pick up on that. 
So I think that's one situation where if I have a gut feeling, somehow I have to test it. Because if I don't, and something like that happens, I'm not helping someone. Now, that might be a little bit sort of strange, but that was a reality, and that came back to me just now. How does one kind of develop, you, you mentioned having the gut feeling, like over the course of your, your many years as a priest, how do you develop that gut feeling into something that you can like discern and draw upon and feel confident in? Like, is there professional development that pastors get so that well, they can... can... We were, again, my seminary formation was very, um, I thought, very complete. There, there, there was a lot of good things in that. I did clinical pastoral at Bellevue Hospital for two summers, which really immerses you in dealing with people, listening to people, and reacting to people. What uh, is, I've never heard of that term, clinical pastoral? It's called CPE. Uh, it was formed by the Protestants in like the 1940s, but now it's adopted. What you do is like maybe seven seminarians from different denominations would meet with a facilitator in a chaplain uh, setting. There's a movie out called A Still Small Voice. Mm. I don't know if you heard of it. And it just got an award somewhere. It was nominated for something. That's an excellent film to display what I'm saying. But it, what you do is you learn on the go how to listen to people, how to respond to people. Most of it is in hospital settings, but it could be in any setting. So it's no clinical pastoral experience. I want to shift a little bit uh, in our last few minutes uh, just to talk a little bit about the Synod. Um, it's been something we followed closely. We got the chance to go and sort of cover it up front. And one thing that became clear to us while we were there was that there we were talking a lot about like life on the ground and people's lived experiences and their life in parishes and looked around and there were not a lot of parish priests present uh, at the synod. I'm curious if that was something you picked up on and felt like that was a lack also. Well, I, I didn't know that. I, I, I read as much as I could, especially in America. I followed everything, but I didn't know that fact. I guess when there was so groundbreaking and in including women, lay people, married people, single people, that probably the priests were kind of... Because yeah. it still had to be a synod of bishops, so you had to have right. a lot of bishops so, still. Um, I think that certainly that could help because you know sometimes bishops have had pastoral experience. A lot of times they haven't, and that shows. So parish priests are there, so I think that could make a difference. Even more than what happened in October in Rome at the, the synod gathering, we've heard from people who you know, have been very interested in America's coverage of the Synod, but then looked at their own parish and been like, wait, where where was it here? I didn't, I wasn't asked what I think about the church. And so, and so it's easy to just like complain about, oh, parishes didn't implement the Synod. But I also think priests have a lot on their hands and maybe weren't given enough time or enough resources to really fully implement the listening sessions that, that were supposed to happen. So I'm wondering what your experience was in that first phase. Oh, like, did you uh, feel like you had the time and resources sure. to hear from people? Well, we had a team of people that were working on it. So we had in-person ones. We had some in Spanish. Uh, the, the fellow who held our LGBT community, he did the Zoom ones as well. So we probably had a total of 15 over the period of time. That's impressive. And then, yeah. and we, we turned our results in, and then we, we produced for the parishioners the results of what came out of our input. So they got to see what were the areas that people spoke about and the numbers that were involved. We had several hundred people 
involved at least once in the synod discussions. So we made it known in the parish. And then this fellow, Gary, who heads our LGBT ministry, he was angry with the Newark results because he felt it didn't do justice to what was said, at least in his experience. And he let it known to the archdiocese. And then Cardinal Tobin appointed him to be on the Continental Synod discussion. Be careful what you wish for. Right. So, <laughs> and, he, and he got to hear a lot of diocesan reports. So he got a good pulse of what, and he did notice that within the United States, that topic was mentioned in a variety of ways. So, uh, but we, we fortunately had good participation and I think we got good feedback as well. Do you have any advice for people that uh, are in parishes where that was not the case? That's where I think Zoom sometimes is helpful, but you didn't always advertise that for outside the parish. Um, at least it depends on the bishop. Our diocese was very strong on doing that. And there was a team in Newark that really helped the parishes. So nobody could say they didn't get support. Other than that, um, just choose the right parish. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that something you recommend to people? Like well, your pro parish shopping? <laughs> no, I, 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 we, as you know, canon law says you can join any parish. Um, I try to get people to go to the parish. Like I'll get a call from another area and they want to do something. I said, where do you live? I said, well, there's three churches right there. Go to one of those churches. And I'd recommend to them where to go. Because I think if you live in the neighborhood and you're worshiping there, then you build community. So it should be not disconnected, but connected in some way. But if people are looking, hey, we want to welcome anyone who finds a home, you're welcome. All right. If you're looking for a home, go to Hoboken. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, Father Santora, it's been great to have you. We do have one last question that we ask all of our guests, and that is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? You know, actually, there was a Jesuit priest at St. Peter's Prep named Father John Browning. And he started what's known as the HAP program. Have you ever heard of that? It's the higher achievement program that Jesuit schools use to get students who may not be ready for a prep environment, but they can go to a summer program and it kind of gives them a sense of what they would get in the high school. But more than that, he was focused on minorities. So he would recruit, especially in the poor neighborhoods of Jersey City, um, black students who had potential but, not, but might not get into a prep school. And that program has probably helped like hundreds of thousands, not only at prep, but throughout the country. He was a very good, humble man who created something that has far outlasted his own lifetime and will continue. So I would canonize Father John Browning. It's a bit of a pandering pick to go with the Jesuit on the Jesuit podcast, but we'll allow it. I was just <laughs> looking up. He, yeah, he's a graduate from St. Peter's Prep in 1946 too. So mm -hmm. it has definitely outlasted him. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So St. Father Browning, thank you so much for joining us today and, and helping us unpack some of this, uh, this Vatican document and how it's sort of playing out on the ground. Uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you, Zach. Thank you. When I wake, I know you are with me In the dark, I can almost see you clearly Every day, you see me
it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. We want to thank quickly our new Patreon supporters who have joined since we last did this. Uh, so huge thank you to Roland Argomanis and Brandon Pals for supporting the show. They got access to all of our bonus episodes in the catalog. Um, we did a, a quick little survey of people who we asked our Patreon supporters who they'd like to see on Jesuitical um, as we're planning 2024 show. Um, and they got first notice for our roadshows coming up. So if you want to join them and support the show, you can hit up patreon.com slash America Media. And speaking of roadshows, want to remind everybody again that uh, we leave this weekend. Yeah, so we are heading to sunny Madison, Wisconsin on, uh, well, first we're going to Chicago and then driving up to Madison. Uh, so hopefully the weather accommodates that. Yeah, it's um, real cold in Chicago <laughs> But right we now. are very, very excited. We're going to be uh, interviewing the bishop up, up there on Tuesday. So if you're in the Madison area, uh, check our show notes for the details on that. But before that Monday, when we get into town, uh, we're hitting up Vintage Brewing Company in Madison West from seven to nine on Monday, the 22nd, uh, just to do kind of a little meet and greet uh, over drinks. So that should be a lot of fun. And then as Ashley said, uh, we're going to be at St. Thomas Aquinas Parish in Madison on Tuesday, the 23rd for Mass at 530 and then a live interview and Q&A with Bishop Donald Hying. And then we'll be going down to your alma mater at Loyola, Chicago. I'm so excited for that. Love Loyola, um, place near and dear to my heart. Um, excited to see some people there. We're doing a real exciting conversation at Ignatius House Chapel at Loyola on Thursday, January 25th at 7 o'clock. Uh, we're going to be chatting with our good friend, Patty Gilger, SJ. Little topic we're calling, uh, what the heck should I do with my life? Um, I <laughs> Still of, figuring it out. Still figuring it out, <laughs> but learned some tricks to help figure it out that we're hoping to uh, tease out of Patty and share with our audience a little bit. Uh, we have some capacity restraints at that one. So if you'd like to come to the Chicago event, please just shoot us an email. A couple of you already have. That's awesome. Uh, it's at jesuitical at americamedia.org. Uh, just let us know and we'll write you back. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And this week we are again talking to a O'Hare fellow here at America Magazine, Delaney Coyne. Welcome. Hi, so glad to be here. And Delaney is one of the assistant producers on the show, so thank you. And that's just one of the things you get to do as an O'Hare Fellow here at America. Yeah, could you describe what the what this fellowship is and just for people who maybe didn't tune in last week and haven't heard before? Yeah, so the O'Hare Fellowship is a lot of things. So it's a bit of a task to describe, but you get to work on the editorial, in print writing. So I've written a bunch of articles. On, I work on the op-ed team alongside Ashley. And then I work on audio with both Zach and Ashley. Um, so I help produce our podcast. I write articles. I edit pieces. Um, I work in audience engagement. So I work with Zach to make sure that as many people that would want to read America can read America. But you do a bunch of different tasks around the business side and the editorial side to really become a well-rounded multimedia journalist. And it's it's a great first media job. Yes. And it's available to graduating seniors in the United States and Canada, not only at Jesuit and Catholic schools, but any, any university in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, so I want to take us back to your college years. Was there a moment or a time period where you can describe you really, you know, owning your faith as something not just that you grew up with, but that's something you wanted to invest in and go deeper into in college? Yeah, um, I really found my faith a lot in a program called For Boston at Boston College, which is where I went to school. Um, with For Boston, you do four hours of community service a week around the city of Boston and then one hour of reflection per week. And my senior year, I was a student leader in the program. 
And I worked at St. Francis House, which is a homeless shelter in Boston serving the adult community during the daytime. So it's a day shelter. Um, And I worked in the art therapy room, which was really lovely. Um, I have no particular artistic talent myself. (laughs) Um, So a lot of what I was doing is more logistical stuff, you know, winding balls of yarn so that people could knit, you know, organizing art supplies. Um, And then I would come back and try to find ways to integrate my service and the service that we all did at St. Francis House into my small group reflections. And I really found that that was a powerful way to connect what was going on in the world and interesting conversations with other people, not just Catholics, you know, about our faith, how service impacts our faith. Um, I was able to give a talk uh, to the organization, and I really found that to be a super fruitful experience, being able to write about how I saw God in my life, you know, every morning at 6 a.m. on the tee. And I I really found an ability to integrate my love of writing and my love of faith and my love of community service. And I think that that was just a huge moment for me in being able to connect all of these different things that I always really cared about. The T is a Boston sad excuse for public transit program. Uh, oh, it's the, terrible. For the unish, uninitiated. It's terrible. I um, took it every morning for about an hour. I'm, <laughs> I'm so familiar. Or every uh, Tuesday morning, I should say. I'm curious if there was a point where you decided that you wanted to at least like stay engaged in around the church and church conversations in your life. You know, not everybody wants to sign up for a media fellowship at a Catholic organization. Yeah, like the, the formal capital C church. Yeah. <laughs> yes. When I when I try to place it, I, I struggle to pick one specific point. I was a high school student who really did not care about the Catholic thing. You know, I, I wanted to go to school in the city and that was where the school in the city was. Um, I object to that a little. <laughs> For Boston College? No, St. Ignatius in oh, high school in okay. Chicago. Hello, I went, city. Yes. Oh, that I thought, was in the. Sorry, city. I thought you wanted to go to school in. No, Boston. that was that was a suburban. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes, Chestnut was... Thrill. I would not call. <laughs> I would not call that. Sorry, um, yeah, it's please. A, it's a fabulous place. Um, but yeah, I really wanted to go to school in the city. Didn't really care about the Catholic thing, but I went to this great Jesuit high school where I had a lot of campus ministers and teachers who really. Um, connected the teachings to social justice a lot. You know, we learned about Exodus and then we learned how it was connected to the civil rights movement. You know, we I took this great class called Service Immersion um, in high school and we did a lot of community service. I worked at a school um, for disabled kids and then integrated that into our reflections on economic justice and environmental justice, um, you know, and all learned a lot about Catholic moral theology. And I kept finding myself having questions I wanted answered. And so I went to BC and I was like, I'll be a theology minor or whatever. And I I just kept asking them and I, I was still curious. And, you know, then I became a theology major and I found that I still had questions. And um, throughout my classes, I would read things from America. And I was like, these are interesting. These are fun to read because a lot of academic theology, in case, you, in case you're unfamiliar, <laughs> is not very fun to read. It's actually quite terrible to read sometimes. But I found a space that you could talk about where it was edifying and it was interesting and, you know, you could talk about pop culture because God is everywhere. God is all in the world and it's a matter of learning how to see God. And I I always loved America for that reason. You know, I would always find something interesting that I would be like, oh, I I never would have thought of that. That's so great. Um, And so when it came time to apply, I had a professor who just really encouraged me to do it. You know, she said, you're a good writer and it'll be a good thing to learn how to write well and write for a public audience. Um, and it, it's been amazing at yeah. learning how to do that. So you've been here for six months, and I don't want to presume that you found God while working at America. But if you did, <laughs> can you describe that? I think especially on college campuses, 
you can find a lot of the time you're very segmented into people that agree with you. And that can be a good thing. You know, you're learning how to develop your ideas from other smart people who care about similar things as you. But then, I, you know, coming to America, I, you know, I'm in conversation with a lot of different people, you know, people who disagree with me on certain issues or who totally agree with me on certain issues or who think I'm right in part and wrong in the other. I, I work on the op-ed team, you know, so we go through a lot of submissions of things that people write and we, you know, edit a lot of things and being able to read other people's writing and talk to other people and to say, oh, you totally disagree with me and you're coming from a great place. Like you care about and love God, you know, just as much as I do, if not more, you know, and to really see that goodness in other people and to see the goodness in disagreement has been so powerful to me because I think that a lot of the time we see people that disagree with us and we say like, oh, well, you know, they, they just couldn't possibly care about other people, you know, but there's a lot of different ways to care about other people and being able to talk to one another and to agree on, you know, our love of God and our love of Jesus and our love of other people. We can we can go from there. And I think that I've really seen that at America in a powerful way that I don't often see out in the world. Well, Delaney, I'm glad that your professor recommended you uh, that you do this job because you're great at it. She was Thank correct. You. Thanks so much for for all you do for for this show and all you've done for America and will continue to do for the, the rest of your fellowship. Want to remind folks if you are a graduating senior or you know someone who's a graduating senior um, that wants to be super cool like Delaney. Please Super check cool. out ohairfellows.org for all the application information. It's when are applications due? It's they are up. due February 1st, and I recommend applying. It is a really fun job. You will not go a day in the office without having a really good laugh and a great conversation with someone. And it's a great place to land in your postgrad year. All right. Visit ohairfellows.org. All right. I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical was produced this week by Delaney Coyne with production assistance from Michael O'Brien and Kevin Christopher Robles, who is also our sound engineer. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Bye.